Welcome to Songcraft, Spotlight on Songwriters. I'm Scott B. Bomar. And I'm Paul Duncan. Behind every great song is a great writer. Songcraft is the show that brings you in-depth interviews with the accomplished and influential writers and composers behind some of those great songs, from the well-known to the ones you should know. On each episode, we feature a different writer sharing his or her insights into the creative process, their approach to the craft, and the stories behind the songs. From the hits to some of the lesser-known deep cuts, whether you're a songwriter, a music lover, or just a fan of pop culture, be sure to subscribe to the show via iTunes so you don't miss out on a single episode. We'd love to hear from you, so let us know what you think by sharing your thoughts at songcraftshow.com. You're listening to Smuggler's Blues, co-written with Glenn Fry and recorded by our guest on this episode of Songcraft, Jack Temption. Best known as the writer of classic Eagles hits such as Peaceful Easy Feeling and Already Gone, Temption is a prolific Southern California troubadour. Emerging from the San Diego folk scene, Jack became a fixture in L.A.'s Laurel Canyon music community in the late 60s and early 70s, where he formed personal and musical alliances with Jackson Brown, J.D. Souther, Glenn Fry, and others. Following his songwriting success with the Eagles, Jack's band The Funky Kings scored with Slow Dancing, a Temption-penned composition that went on to become a top 10 pop single for Johnny Rivers and a top 10 country hit for Johnny Duncan. In the 1980s, he and former Eagle Glenn Fry collaborated frequently, co-writing Glenn's hits I Found Somebody, The One You Love, Smuggler's Blues, You Belong to the City, and more. In the 1990s, he found success in the country field when his songs were recorded by artists such as George Jones, Sammy Kershaw, Patti Loveless, and Trisha Yearwood. As an artist, Jack has released a half-dozen studio albums and a handful of live records. His most recent EP, Room to Run, is available now via iTunes and Spotify, and his new album, Learning to Dance, will be released this summer. Additionally, Jack has recently launched a series of online videos called Go Write One, which is designed to inspire people to create their own songs. We assume he knows what he's talking about, because in addition to the artists we've already mentioned, Jack's songs have been recorded by Lou Harris, Linda Ronstadt, Wilson Phillips, Buck Owens, Tanya Tucker, the Desert Rose Band, Dwight Yoakam, Glenn Campbell, Kenny Rogers, and the list goes on. Jack, welcome to Songcraft. Well, thank you. It's great to be here. It's great to have you with us today. So, you grew up in the San Diego area. What kind of music were you exposed to in your formative years that kind of shaped your identity as a songwriter? Well, there was music that came through my family. They bought records of Harry Belafonte, and they bought records of uh, uh, My Fair Lady and the Broadway shows, and we used to listen to those. Those had a huge effect on me. Mm. Uh, And then uh, the Japanese were making really cheap transistor radios, and you could listen to the radio under the covers when you were supposed to be sleeping. <laughs> right. And so I, and I, I heard uh, country music. There was a country station. There was KCBQ, and at the time that was the top, top 40, and they had all the songs that everyone in the whole country was listening to. Right. Everyone used to listen to the same playlist. Just one playlist fits all. <laughs> yeah. Once I, so I heard all the stuff from the early 50s, every, every person who lived in the United States knows every song that was on the radio at that time. <laughs> right, right. From uh, How Much Is That Doggy in the Window to It's a Wonderful World to, you know, whatever. Right. How, how'd you first start getting into kind of the, the troubadour thing, for lack of a better term, and, and some of the, the folk stuff that became part of your early identity? Well, for some reason, uh, in a certain year, coffee houses opened up all over the country. 
Yeah. So San Diego, these coffee houses opened up, and I went there as a kid. I didn't play music, but I just went in and saw these strange people doing these weird things, and I was fascinated. <laughs> yeah. They only serve cider and, and stuff in there, but uh, I saw Carl Baumgartner and Anna Baumgartner play the blues with two little brown Martin guitars, mm, uh. and, and they were extremely sexy and extremely amazingly good. I haven't seen anybody better to this day, uh -huh. and they disappeared. But I would go to the coffee houses and see these, this music, and it just started seeping into me, you know? Yeah. Yeah, and then at at some point, then you go. I think I want to try to write one of these. Well, I used to hang out with my buddy, and uh, this was the age of pot and LSD, <laughs> and we go down to the beach, and we would make up songs. Right. Like we we'd start making up a song uh, about the city and the burning clouds as we're watching the sunset. We play that song for three hours. <laughs> he right. would just make up endless <laughs> lyrics that would be great, and we would go on. And one day I said, Hey, Joe. What, Maybe maybe we should write one of these things down sometime, you know. <laughs> and uh, and Joe said, uh, "No way, <laughs> no way. That would ruin it, man. Yeah, right. Why would we do that? Well, why would you do that? Yeah. <laughs> and then the next one won't come through, or whatever, you know. So we would sing them and forget them. And uh, <laughs> wow. so then I went to the coffee house one night, and I just uh, I was a harmonica player. Then I didn't even play guitar, so huh. I, I got up and played harmonica and. Uh, and then I just started getting up and doing songs, but I couldn't really do the songs very well because I didn't have any talent at all for it. <laughs> uh, and so then I just started writing my own songs. So that way no one could say, hey, you didn't do that correctly. Right, right. right. And then uh, pretty quickly, other people began asking me if they could perform my songs, oh. you know. Uh, and so that's the first. So I never thought of myself as a songwriter until a whole bunch of people kept playing playing my songs you know wow. yeah and i went oh maybe i can do that and so i understand the first song of yours that you ever actually had recorded by another artist was a song called strawberry malt by hedge and donna that is correct and <laughs> i'm amazed that you know that, that <laughs> well, is absolutely correct i i have to give uh, credit to my partner scott he is quite the quite the researcher um <laughs> but tell wow. us about that first step into the world of professional songwriting oh my it was amazing i was i was sitting at the uh in the coffee house in La Mesa, Occam's Razor, it was called. Hmm. The same night that some old blues guy was there, and he was teaching me how to crack the top off a wine bottle and make it into a finger slide. Wow. Huh. And then, and then you, you rub it on the cement to get all the rough edges off, you know. So, so I'm there, and then these two people show up, Hedge and Donna, and, they're, and they play, and it just completely blew our minds. They were so awesome and professional, and so I got to be friends with them, and, and they, they went up to L.A. and got a record deal and did very well for a while. Uh, and they were the first people, so they recorded my song, Strawberry Malt. Um, and, boy, I was just immensely thrilled. Mm, yeah, and, 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 and fortune followed, I'm sure, right? No, uh, that, fortune... <laughs> Fortune followed, no money followed. Uh, you know, I kept contacting the guy in New York who was the publisher going, hey, where's my 35 cents? You me, you know, and, and it never happened. So. <laughs> the <laughs> but, first lesson uh, in the music business. Somebody still got your 35 cents, man. Yes, that's right. And, uh, <laughs> and that taught me a lot, really. 
You yeah, know? yeah. Well, I know that you kind of bounced around between like San Francisco and, and L.A. in your early career, but um, it was down in your hometown of San Diego where you forged a couple of very important musical friendships with J.D. Souther and Glenn Frey. Uh, yeah. Talk a little bit about how you first met those guys. Well, what happened there is I was playing in a place called the Candy Company on El Cajon Boulevard in San Diego, and it was a, kind of a large for a folk club. It was a nice club. And I went in there one night, and uh, J.D. Souther and Glenn Fry had a duo called Long Branch Penny Whistle, and they had a gig there. I said, hey, you know, where are you staying? And they they were staying at the club owner's place. So anyway, right. they I asked them if they wanted to stay at my house. So I had a big place on Park Boulevard with about six or eight people, and uh, we I had a candle factory in the garage, and it was a hippie pad. You know? Right, man. Yeah. So, uh, so they started staying there, and we had a washed-up base in the living room, you know, and and they came down for a whole bunch of concerts. And they would come down, and we would hang around, and then they had a record deal, and at some point they brought down the record they'd made. Yeah. Well, you know, J.D. and, and Glenn and, and others, uh, yourself included, were, were sort of part of what was coming together in the late 60s and early 70s as that kind of folksy Laurel Canyon scene in Los Angeles. And, you know, Doug Weston's Troubadour Club in, in West Hollywood was, of course, uh, an important part of that world. Um, talk a bit about that, that venue, the Troubadour, and, and why it was important in your own career development. Wow. Well... I got introduced to the L.A. scene. I mean, uh, I used to go up there, and uh, I stayed with Glenn, with Glenn and J.D. At, in Silver Lake, right. their little place right above where Jackson Brown was, and they were going to help me out by introducing me to David Geffen. First it was uh, Jackson, and he was basically introducing Glenn and J.D. to David Geffen. Then they would play Monday nights at the Troubadour, Sure. So I, I just would go up there. First, I went up there for the hoot night, and I'm standing there in the line on Monday afternoon because you want to get there early and stand in line to sign up to play. Right. Otherwise, you don't get to play. Kind of, a, was, kind of an open mic kind of thing. It was definitely an open mic thing. And then after the first couple times, Matt Kramer was running the hoots at that time, and he goes, Jack, you don't have to sign up. You just let me know you're coming. I'll put you on. Uh, yeah. And he would do the same thing with Jackson Brown. And then eventually, uh, I did meet Doug Weston, after a while and i mean i came up to la with nothing but i had this old suit coat and everything was in the pockets of my coat you know my toothbrush you know what i mean <laughs> right and right no luggage no nothing and i ended up riding around in, in doug weston's limo and yes. he was handing me a seven-page contract you know and he wanted him to sign me to his new record company oh wow you know? right so, and i eventually didn't do it but still it was a it was quite a rush you know yeah why'd you and pass then, it up well, I looked at the contract. <laughs> you know, it, was, it was very long and very involved. Doug Weston had a wonderful way of keeping a club open and making it profitable. Uh, what he did was, if you played the Troubadour, you had to sign a contract to play there. And the contract included a clause where every year you, you, you came back and played again right. for about five or six years. Yeah. And you just got a, a certain percentage of a bump in your in your uh, pay, right? But if you were Joni Mitchell, the first time you played there, you were nobody. 
Then when you came back two years later, you could have filled uh, an arena, right? but you still had to come back and play the Troubadour for a very low fee. Yeah, I, I read the same thing, because uh, I grew up a big Elton John fan, and of course he's tied to the Troubadour, um, uh-huh. having his first big show there, and I read the same thing about him and thought, man, that's, that's amazing. That, that second show at the Troubadour must have had a, a, quite a different yeah. impact than the <laughs> right. first. Yeah, which, by the way, I was in the audience uh, when Elton John played the first show at the Troubadour. What? Yeah. I was there, and I'm I'm going. Wow, this guy is awesome! But then, you know, he gets up, he kicks over the piano bench. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like right. he does, and he's he's playing, and and everybody's screaming, and I'm going, "Did he hire these people or what? <laughs> you know, what's going on here?" It was like, but yes, I was there. That wow, was his amazing! First, uh, his first show at the Troupe. Wow, that's incredible. I saw everybody there. Wow. Uh, <clears throat> I saw Graham Parsons when he just got back from England. Man. Wearing a nudie suit and thinking he was Mick Jagger. Uh, but he was awesome and incredible. And I saw Joni Mitchell play there. And uh, Well, you and know, I, I kind of get the sense that, you know, with, with people like you and J.D. Souther and Glenn Fry, Jackson Brown, Joni Mitchell, a lot of these people that you're mentioning, that there was this very kind of real organic musical community that was at the time, not about the business or about aligning yourself with the right people so much as it was just kind of this mutual admiration and, and appreciation thing. And, you know, I'm sure it's easy for me as a fan to look back on that era as having this certain magic to it. But as a person who was there, as someone who was living it, do you kind of think of that in the same way or am I just sort of romanticizing this? Oh, yes. It was more than you think. You know, it, it was a wave of new energy going through the whole country and and we knew that we were at the heart of it you know because we yeah. loved the music so much and then we we went to where it was happening and uh but everybody was in it you right. know e- everyone was digging Joni Mitchell when she came out yeah. you know because uh, you know I don't know the music it, it was almost like a new art form or something I, yeah. I don't know but yeah that's what, what you're asking is yeah so we would go around and listen for songs, and then if we heard a great one, we would, you know, want to hang out with those guys. Yeah. And we, it was all about, uh, you know, there were a lot of people that were hanging out and that were playing, and maybe they weren't as good and they didn't go as far. Sure. Uh, but we were all just hungry to find somebody else good and, and listen and get inspired by them and learn what they knew and steal it. You know? <laughs> right, and yeah. uh, everybody was doing that, and everybody wanted to do that. And we were all so excited, you yeah. know, because uh, you, you, you'd run into somebody and, you know, you're sitting there and Jackson Brown plays you a couple songs and nobody in the world has heard him yeah. yet. Yeah, amazing. And you're just sitting there going, well, I know. <laughs> something, this is something here. This right. is not just normal life. This is something amazing that's happening. Yeah. Well, yeah. And, you, and you really were seeing a lot of changes, um, you know, in, in the way, you know, rock music and pop music were coming out. You were seeing the piano used in a different kind of way. You were seeing country music begin to fuse its way into rock in a way that it hadn't before, you know. And and to look at the context of all the music that was happening that that time, it must have been really exciting just even to see the musical advancements that were happening. Well, it's also what comes in goes out if you uh if you're watching certain tv if you're reading a lot of certain kind of books you know well what happened is the world was changing and Mm. the music was just following it yeah you know the world was changing it was like we were going oh we i'm gonna wear some bright colors i'm not gonna wear a suit (laughs) and i'm not gonna go the i'm not gonna go the road my parents had to go 
you know, I'm going to express myself. And sure. I'm gonna, well, so this was a bit, I mean, the music had always been expressing the people, but there was just a, a total change in the attitudes. Yeah, right. And the music was how we were in mass communicating with each other. Right. Some guy would hear the Rolling Stones, he would hear satisfaction in Wisconsin, you know what I mean? And six months later, he's in L.A. Mm. Uh, going, where is it? Where is it? You know? <laughs> right. I mean, it just woke people up, you know? Mm. And uh, So I think that's it. It was reflecting the huge wheel turning and the change in the times. Yeah. And of course, that change was was big, and, and people try to put it down, because it always goes back to the conservative versus the liberal. But my feeling is, a lot of the things that we believed and the things we started and the things we tried, even though they kind of look silly when you look back, they're, they're not silly, and they've actually come to pass, and they've yeah. actually, we actually did change the world for the better. Well, we, we talked about you uh, getting to know Glenn Fry, and of course he went on to form a, a little band called the Eagles, <laughs> That's right. um, who recorded your song Peaceful Easy Feeling and made it a top 20 hit in early 1973. And I got a peaceful, easy feeling, and I know you won't. that song in El, I started it in El Centro, California. My buddy had made a poster to advertise me, and he put quotes from all these famous people about me, uh, very impressive quotes. Of course, these people had never heard of me. Uh, it was, you know, he was a very great poster guy, and he made it all up, and it was great. So this guy in El Centro had a little club. I guess he, he saw this poster, and he hired me. Right. So I drove out there and, and did a gig. It was like a, a coffee house that he put in a mini mall, you know, just this little, took a little room. And, and so I played, and I was thinking I might try to go home with the waitress at the time. <laughs> She was going, oh, yeah, great, okay. And so I told the other guys to leave without me. Uh, and then move. She, and then <laughs> she disappeared and never came back. So <laughs> I end up sleeping in this little uh, place, you know, with a hard floor, and I, there's nothing there. And that's when I grabbed that poster and turned it over, and on the back I started writing a song. Hmm. So that's when I started it. And uh, I came back to San Diego I saw this girl at the street fair with these beautiful earrings, hmm. so I put her in the song. Hmm. And I was quite anxious to fall in love with every possible woman that I saw. <laughs> and I, that's what I did, and then I, I just kept putting them in the song. Right. And the song's really about, as long as you're doing that, and as long as you're like that, you're never going to get anywhere. Uh, right. <laughs> it's, only, it's only when you... <laughs> when you don't need it, that it's going to come right, knocking. Right, you know? right. So the song isn't really about one woman, it's about every woman that you saw. <laughs> it kind of is, yeah. <laughs> That's funny. And then later I thought, well, how did I get all those women down through this pen onto the yellow pad? I'd like to do that again. <laughs> but I thought, I don't know, I think doing things again is, is one thing you can't do, you know? Right, <laughs> so, right. Well, it sounds like you were better off having uh, written about them than even having met them all. <laughs> yeah, and some of the, the women I fell in love with, I did, never did have to meet them. 
I just looked <laughs> through the window of my house and saw him at the bus stop, you know? <laughs> right. So, uh, so that's how that song started. And then I was finger-picking it in a very gentle way. And then I, then one day I thought, I'll try flat-picking it, you know? Hmm, right. And that was kind of... That was kind of cooler. So then I got invited. Uh, I was staying at Jackson Brown's house while they were going to take me to see David Geffen. You know? right. So uh, I'm sitting there, and I went into the music room of Jackson's little tiny place. He blocked out the windows with the moving blankets, and he had a piano in there because you know, he, he would like to write where no one could you know, hear mm. what he's doing. Yeah. And I'm in there playing the song, and, and uh, Glenn came over, and he came in and said, hey, what's that? You know, so I go, oh, well, it's my new song. And then I had gone back to, to finger-picking it real slowly. Right. So he, he recorded it on a cassette tape, and the next day he came back and says, Jack, I got this new band I'm putting. We've only been together eight days, <laughs> and if you don't mind, we worked up your song. So he pushes the button, and on the cassette recorder, there they are, like, playing Peaceful, Easy Feeling. Mm, wow. Uh, and then about a week later, <laughs> I got to go listen to them in the rehearsal hall. Wow. The rehearsal hall they rented was extremely small, and they just packed the band in there, and I'm sitting there like, you know, four feet from the band, and there's Don Henley singing, You Don't Miss Your Water Till Your Well Runs Dry, wow. and he's playing drums wow. at the same time. I'm going, whoa, who the hell is this guy? <laughs> I mean, so the uh, the eagles the eagles are like two weeks old at this point. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Although they had, you know they they were on the road playing with Linda Ronstadt, right. but as a band, and Glenn's telling me, he says, "Look, we're gonna we're gonna bring all the big record companies in here. We're gonna, you know, we're gonna sit this guy in this chair and this guy right here and this guy here. We're gonna right. play for him." You know. Right. So, right. <laughs> now I understand that 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 you uh, are forever uh, tied into the great cultural institution, uh, the Wiener Schnitzel. That, uh, you, didn't you write part of the song at the Wiener Schnitzel? That's true. It's funny how things happen. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, uh, I was out in San Diego on Washington Boulevard, wandering around with my uh, Stella, $13 Stella pawn shop guitar that I always had. Hmm. And I sat down waiting for a Polish dog at the Wiener Schnitzel there on Washington <laughs> Boulevard. And that's where I wrote the last verse of Peaceful, Easy Feeling. Wow. Uh, and so, like, you know, 40 years later, the mayor declares Peaceful, Easy Feeling Day, and we have a celebration down there at the Wiener Schnitzel. And they <laughs> so put a great. little plaque on the outdoor table where I was sitting. Is there really? The, the most awesome <laughs> thing is that 40 years later, the Wiener Schnitzel is still there. So, so any, so any any rock and roll tourists out there can actually go to the Wiener Schnitzel and sit yeah. at the very table. Yeah, awesome. Where, where I wrote the last verse to Peaceful, and then they and then the uh, so they presented me with some plaques, and then the Wiener Schnitzel place themselves presented me with a solid gold wiener. <laughs> uh, which I still have and I'm not going to say anything more about I was about it. to say I think I might leave that one alone too uh, yeah <laughs> so, uh, a lot of guys think they have one uh, <laughs> but they don't but I do so that's amazing <laughs> Yeah, to, so, to, to, to the waitress who went home and left you there at the club. That's right. <laughs> now and she you know knows. what? She never, she never knows. She never knew. And, and like I say to some other women, when I'm playing, I go, you know, if you were walking by my house on Park Boulevard 40-some years ago, you 
you might be in this song. <laughs> well, it, it's always fascinating to me the way, you know, the, the mundane moments of a person's life can find their way into an iconic song. And then, you know, the song that you wrote that probably just felt like one of your songs, you may have known it was special right away, I don't know, but it must have a, kind of affected your life pretty soon once that thing became a hit. What, what was life after Peaceful Easy Feeling like for you? pretty exciting. I mean, uh, when Peaceful Easy Feeling was coming out, my wife and I had uh, spent a long time buying a Volkswagen bus. So she was my girlfriend at that time. Uh-huh. And then we were getting ready to travel. You know, we lived in our bus across the country and did a bunch of stuff like that. But when we first started out, I met a guy, uh, we drove up the coast to Ukiah, and we're sitting in the park and met a guy named Star. <laughs> who was managing a band. Right. So we went over the band house, you know, and I was going to hang and we were jam with the guys or whatever. And uh, and then they had a little radio on top of the refrigerator and Peaceful Easy Feeling by the Eagles came out of there. And that's the first time I heard it on the radio. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> you know? wow. And uh, man, it just, and it sounded so incredibly good too. Yeah. So, and I just got a thrill right then that has never gone away. Yeah, yeah, that's cool. Well, in the summer of 1974, uh, the Eagles had another top 40 single with Already Gone, which you wrote with Rob Strandlin. What's the story behind that one? I wanted to write a country song, but I just thought, you know, Jack, you you don't have a clue. I I just knew a couple folk chords, and I didn't have a clue about what was country. Hmm. So I played at the back door at San Diego State, uh, which is a club there. Right. And... uh, Rob Strandlin and I were in the back room, and I said, hey, man, let's write a country song. And because Rob, uh, his parents were country singers, and he had cowboy boots, a cowboy hat. He had a big dog and rode a horse, <laughs> and then he knew country. <laughs> yeah, know? right, so, right. So uh, we looked in the refrigerator there in the back of the, and there was, we started drinking something out of there that turned out to be hard cider. <laughs> right. And I had never had a I had never had a drink of any kind of alcohol until oh, just wow. didn't happen to have happened. So I got pretty whacked, and <laughs> uh, and and so did he. And we wrote the song in about twenty minutes, you know. Wow. And then we got up on stage and played it, uh, and then just kind of forgot about it after that. Yeah, uh, yeah. But uh, but apparently Glenn Fry had heard it. So years later, he called me up and said, "Hey, you know that country song." That you that you have, I go yeah, and he goes. I think it would be a cool rock song, hmm. you know. So uh, I said yeah, you know. And then he the next night he called me and held this phone up to the speakers in the studio, and they were it was playing already gone by the Eagles. So wow, uh, <laughs> man. But you know, in a way, I, I actually failed to write a country song at that point. You, know? <laughs> right, right, you wrote a rock song. So what, what, uh, how much of a factor was the hard cider in the, in the woo-woo part of that song? <laughs> well, quite a bit. <laughs> Although I was a woo-woo kind of guy. Right. You know? and, uh, but yeah, that really helped. It really helped the mood. <laughs> right. You yeah. know? And it's, the song is, is really three, 
the, it's the main three chords over and over in the same order. Yeah. And yeah. unless you modulate at the end like the Eagles do, it never changes. Yeah. So it's yeah. really the simplest song ever written almost, you know. Well, you know, I, I think if uh, if I had written a song that I wanted to be a country song and Glenn Fry called and said he wanted it to be a reggae song, I'd say that's fine. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. As a songwriter, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Do what you want with that thing, man. <laughs> yeah. Well, in 1976, your own group, the Funky Kings, released a self-titled album on Arista Records that included the song Slow Dancing. What's the inspiration behind that one? The idea started at the Iron Horse in El Cajon. El Cajon is a city uh, near San Diego. Right. I'm out there watching my friend and his band play, and he is uh, his band is Joe Bummer and the Ass Bites from Hell. Uh, <laughs> so he's playing all these songs. And the band's playing the songs are really good, but nobody's uh, getting up to dance. Mm. You know, I noticed that. And then, then all of a sudden he plays a slow song and everyone gets up to dance. Yeah. And I'm thinking, oh, well, they're all waiting for when they can hold the other person, right. you know. <laughs> right. That's, right. you know, so, uh, so I thought, then I thought, well, you know, there ought to be a song called Slow Dancing, you know. Yeah. And uh, so I started working on that. And at that time, my girlfriend and I, who's now my wife, we were basically just falling in love and so that just somehow made its way into the song yeah yeah and, uh, well and you know not only i mean you guys did it your band the funky kings and i think it was a, a top 20 adult contemporary hit um but then it went on to become a, a top 10 pop record for johnny rivers in 1977 top 10 country record for Johnny Duncan in, in 1979. And I think about, you know, that, and, I, and I'm also thinking of in light of what you're saying about Already Gone, going from a country song to a rock song, there seems to be something about your songs that connect with audiences kind of across genres. And I'm wondering if you have any thoughts about, you know, a song like that, like Slow Dancing, that you're able to have the success on these various charts and, and that your songs are sort of moldable for different mediums. Yeah, I'm not so sure. I mean, at one point, <clears throat> Bob Dylan said, oh, there's three types of song, folk, rock, and blues. <laughs> right. And so then he says, well, I basically, I write the words, I go in the studio, I pick up the guitar, I play it, a, I play it folk. <laughs> and then I tell the band, okay, then the, then I play it rock, and then I play it blues, and then I figure out where the song is. You know? <laughs> so uh, I think to, to answer your question, it might be, I mean, I'm into the song form and lyrically saying something. Right. And I guess that can just cross over. Mm, sure. Well, yeah, I mean, it's interesting how you even talk about the difference between um, I'm finger-picking, now I'm flat-picking, now right. I'm strumming, and, and what that can do to kind of the nature of a song, the character of a song, and um, how that can, you know, change its, change its face a little bit. Yeah, there's those type of changes in how it's recorded. Uh, the country version of Slow Dancing was quite different because the guy talked to the lyrics. Right. You know, and uh, I, I listened to it, I thought, oh, that's not going to work, but it did. <laughs> you know? Yeah, so, right, right. Uh, and then maybe 
as time goes on, what what was rock is now country. What yeah, is country totally sure. used to be rock. Right. What, you know, so yeah, uh, right. It's kind ideas. of fluid. Well, in 1978, you released a self-titled album that was cut in Muscle Shoals, and it featured some really interesting songs, including Tijuana, which you wrote with Tom Waits. Oh, that's right. I forgot I actually recorded that on there. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. Well, Tom Waits was the doorman at the Heritage Coffee House, and the Heritage was like the the first the first great coffee house in San Diego. Mm. It was different from the other places in that it was a listening room. You you weren't allowed to talk while the guys were playing. Mm, right. But he always had the great people in there, uh, and uh, Tom Waits was just the guy who took the money at the door. Wow. You know, and Waits and I used to really love to listen to Ray Burrell. Uh, he was one of the great artists that played at the Heritage. Right. Not Ray Burrell was not a writer, but he would find all these great songs. You know? Yeah. So uh, Tom Waits was a photographer, and he liked to photograph the seamy side of life. You know, like huh. the the homeless people downtown, and yeah. You know, so he was already into capturing that kind of thing, but. They bought a piano and put it in the Heritage, and after the place closed every night, Tom would start playing the piano in there, you know? Hmm. And eventually, he said he started taking piano lessons, and he sold all his cameras one by one, uh, you know, to pay for piano lessons. Yeah. And then he got up and started playing, and of course... uh, He wrote a series of songs, I Hope That I Don't Fall In Love With You, and he just wrote old 55 and mm. he wrote a series of songs that were just unbelievable and that first album of his um, had just is just so fabulous and classic so then mm. one night we did get together or maybe it was a couple times and and decided to write something and you know it was just for fun yeah and we wrote that song tijuana yeah well you mentioned ray burl as being someone who um just had a, a sense for finding Great yeah. songs. Um, and someone else that, that strikes me uh, in that same way is Emmylou Harris. And the oh, yeah. title track to, to her um, early 1980s album, White Shoes, was a song that you wrote by yourself uh, and a song that had been recorded by former Eagle Randy Meisner a couple of years prior. this reputation as someone who covers and champions only the cream of the crop when it comes to great songwriters. What did it mean to you to have her record one of your songs and make it the the title track for her record? Oh, everything. (laughs) You know, uh, yeah, Emmy Lou is one of the people I just put on the special list of of music people that just, and I got to be the opening act on a tour for Emmy Lou, uh, years before she recorded that song. Yeah. And so I was just in awe, you know, I'd, I'd watch the whole show every night. And it, <laughs> and at one point I said, 
I asked her if she wanted to write some songs, and she goes, "Well, I'm not, I'm not so into that. You should be writing with these other guys in the band, huh. you know." And I go, "Okay." And and so the other guys in the band were Ricky Skaggs, Rodney Crowell. Wow, that's <laughs> yeah. a pretty good little band. <laughs> so I, I definitely should have been writing with those guys. You know? <laughs> right. But right. Uh, I just, uh, you know, I'm just such a huge heartfelt fan of Emmy Lou and all the different records she's ever mm. made. And yeah, she's incredible. Well, in 1982, uh, Glenn Fry released his debut post-Eagles solo album, No Fun Allowed, and you were a writer on more than half the songs, uh, including the debut single, I Found Somebody, which became a top 40 hit. Um, and even though the Eagles had recorded your songs, um, the stuff that they had recorded were obviously not things that you had written with Glenn. Um, mm-hmm. So how did the two of you actually first start collaborating? Well, I kind of joke that I, well, I like to know a guy for about 10 years or so before I write anything. <laughs> make sure he's a good dude first. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you know, just make sure he's okay. So, uh, so I went in there into his place the first day and he, he had a million candles lit right hmm. i'm going glenn what you you know do you have a date with some of these penthouse babes Cause, I mean, you know, are we writing today or what i mean because he's an eagle you know so right. going, yeah. yeah uh and then he's got two bottles of very expensive red wine you know so i'm going whoa uh, then he goes no no he says it's the muse oh. the, the songwriter muse he goes look she's up there and we're not the only two guys we're not the only guys trying to write a song tonight. <laughs> wow. So we have to court the muse and make her come down and visit us. Wow. You know? <laughs> and, cool. uh, and I think we, we heard, you know, we, we sat around, got in a good mood. We played some records. I think we had an, an Eddie Harris record or something. And then, boom, we, we, we wrote about two songs that first night you mm. know? Yeah. Wow. Uh, that became hits. And, so, and then I wrote with Glenn for 14 years. Wow. Um, and it was just <laughs> pretty much fabulous, you know. Well, one of the classic songs from that first solo record is The One You Love. Are you gonna stay with the one who loves you? Or are you going back to the one you love? Someone's gonna cry when they know they've lost you. Someone's gonna thank I think I had a a book, uh, Eddie Baker, uh, guitar chord Hmm. book, How to Play Jazz. (laughs) And in the first page, there's 30 jazz chords and the first lesson says learn these you know (laughs) so i'm trying to learn these and it's quite difficult so i made them into a song so i could get the chords interesting and uh so then when i went up to glenn i already had those chords so i started Mm. playing those chords you know the major sevens and stuff which to me were just like some kind of new magic chord you know (laughs) right but then glenn he just starts playing it and he turns it into something and then all of a sudden we're thinking about, like, God, what if some incredible girl had to choose between two really cool guys like me and Glenn, you know? And, yeah, right. and our hearts are just so sympathetic. Then, then, <laughs> and then somehow we just came up with that line, and then we looked at each other and went, oh, oh, yeah. 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 You know, and then we just followed it through. So Yeah, well, and you and him, I mean, you continued to 
to find success together for a good while. You joined forces with him once again for his all-nighter album, which spawned the top 20 hits Sexy Girl and Smuggler's Blues, and uh, the latter won Glenn an MTV Video Music Award in 1985. song written with the idea of creating this accompanying video to kind of tell this story because it's really such a a story kind of dramatic type of song well uh that song was written down here in encinitas in in my backyard studio with with glenn and he came down and had uh him and the eagle organization had purchased the rights to a book called Snowblind about hmm. the cocaine trade. Right. So he said, yeah, let's write a song for this movie that we're going to make. Right. You know, we started it with a story and a little drama and everything. Right. And, and, but then we kind of wanted to expand it, and we wanted to say what we wanted to say about the war on drugs, you know. Right. Uh, but still make it cool and bluesy and, and through, through the eyes of one of the guys trapped in the life you know yeah Yeah, Uh, yeah. and so we wrote that here and he made the he made the demo of it here and then later got hooked up with uh miami vice uh, michael mann and they gave us an episode and we wrote a song to that episode which was you belong to the city right Belong to the City. I mean, that went to number two on the Billboard pop chart. It became Glenn's biggest hit as a solo artist. And it's always been interesting for me to look at kind of the, the trajectory of the Eagles and how those guys went into their solo careers, because at one point you're kind of, the songs are about being in the desert and there's kind of this country feel and, you know, the, the pictures on the Desperado album, that kind of thing. And then all of a sudden there's this distinctly city vibe. Um, Maybe I shouldn't say all of a sudden because I think it was probably a gradual thing. You kind of go country and then they went a little more rock. And then even with the Don Henley songs, like, you know, all she wants to do is dance. But you see that with Glenn with Smuggler's Blues. You see it with You Belong to the City. You even see it with The Heat Is On. Is that just what was happening, lifestyle changes with you and these guys and and going from being kids to growing up and and having to live in the city and watching drugs kind of enter the picture? Or, Or was this... Um, just people wanting to change their minds and the way they approached music. Yeah, I mean, a lot of it, well, yeah, I guess thematically the songs changed changed a bit, but more musically. I think they were just, you know, keeping up with the times. And also, you know, I mean, 
Henley was from Texas, and, and Glenn's from Detroit. Right. So prior to the Eagles, you know, he, he, he used to play and jam with Bob Seger and had a whole different urban, uh, much more urban sound. You know? right. And of course, when Henley made his solo, solo album, he went way out away yeah. from what the Eagles did and used all kinds of weird sounds. And yeah. I don't know if it's just moving on creatively and then, uh, you know, I don't, I'm not sure really. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Well, in the late 1980s and early 90s, you and Glenn continued to have the streak of success with top five singles on the adult contemporary charts, including uh, True Love, Soul Searching, um, Part of Me, Part of You, which uh, w- ended up in the film Thelma and Louise. Um, but then in 1994, uh, the unexpected happens. The Eagles reunited and released the Hell Freezes Over album, which included just four new songs, um, one of which was uh, The Girl From Yesterday, which you co-wrote with Glenn. How someone who had been so close could be so far away And she became the girl from yesterday that something that you guys had had already come up with or was that something that you did specifically for this new Eagles project we had already come up with it we we had still been working on songs and kind of had a backlog of songs that we had finished that you know hadn't made it onto an album and right uh, I was kind of surprised that they chose that when it being so so country and all mm, right uh, but boy it was fabulous to uh, to see and I went to the hell freezes over concert you know got to yeah. see them well, in 2007, the Eagles released their last studio album to date, Long Road Out of Eden, and that also included a couple of Jack Timpson songs, It's Your World Now and Somebody. Somebody, somebody, you got a somebody's following you. Um, now, Somebody is a song that you wrote with singer-songwriter John Brannon. I'd love to know a little bit about that song and how it came together. About six or seven years before the album came out, and John Brandon and I were working in my house, little uh, writer house in Hollywood, and he said that there was a TV show starring Michael Madsen as a guy who goes around and uh, gets even with people who got away with it, you know? Mm-hmm. Right. So, oh, this is cool. So we wrote somebody about that somebody's following you and they're going to get you. Right. You know, and then and then we wrote it and then I thought, well, it needs a hook musical uh so I made a bow down 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 at the beginning because I thought, you know, it's TV and they're going to need some little thing to play over and over. <laughs> right. You know. And so uh so the next day we I think we submitted it, but I also was talking to Glenn then, so I uh I I I gave him a copy. And then I got a call back from Glenn going, yeah, we like that. Hold on to it. Me, mm. me and Don uh, decided we like it. Yeah. So uh, the, the TV show called back, and I just I said, man, no, we're, we're not going to do that. Mm. So we, we canceled it from then. Wow. And then all through the, the then six years followed. And, of course, my co-writer is going, hey, man, other people want to do this song. It's <laughs> right. been four right. years. We haven't heard anything. I'm going, well, the song doesn't exist. You know, the, <laughs> these guys wouldn't have told us that if they didn't have it in mind. I'd rather wait. Right, you know right, what I mean? Right. And then six years later, right, finally. Right. Uh, it actually worked out. That's awesome. 
Well, you know, some people might not realize that you had a good bit of success in the country field in the 1990s. Um, George Jones recorded Someone That You Used to Know, which you wrote with Bobby Whitlock of, of Derek and the Dominoes fame. Um, Sammy Kershaw fell just shy of the top 40 with Your Tattoo, which you co-wrote with Costas. Um, Patty Loveless recorded uh, To Feel That Way at All, which you wrote with Jim Lauderdale. And, and Trisha Yearwood cut One More Chance, which you wrote with J.D. Souther. Now, did you consciously spend time in Nashville and pursue that country market or was this something that just sort of happened? Yeah, I think I was looking I was looking for that. Gosh, when you say it like that, it sounds like I did pretty good, you know? <laughs> <laughs> wow, that's pretty I mean, uh I'm impressed. Yeah. Yeah, for a while I was I was going to Nashville like once once a year they invited me to play at their legendary songwriter uh, thing at the Ryman Auditorium mm. one year, the first year, the second year they did it. Uh, I was actually, I was in the audience that night. Oh, really? Yeah. Paul and I are both Nashville natives, yep. so, yeah. Oh, my gosh, you saw that show. I did, I did. And and they had, uh, they had a show every year, and I saw a couple of them, and they were so fabulous. I mean, they oh, had yeah. Lieber and Stoller, they had... Yeah, Jimmy Webb and yeah. all kinds of great guests, yeah. So that was, a, that was wonderful, and that got me coming to Nashville... And then I, I would go out there and write with people and stuff. But, you know, Costas, I think I had met him, but he was passing through L.A., probably at the Sportsman's Lodge or something, and I went over to see him, and we wrote two songs that night, uh, and one of them was Your Tattoo, right? which is just sort of a novelty song about the guy going, my ex-girlfriend's tattoo is on my arm, and my present girlfriend keeps pounding my arm. <laughs> what am I going to do with it? How do I, right, right. You know, and I, I didn't think that would happen, but uh, but it did become a hit song, so that yeah. was cool. Oh, 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 Sean, I fade away and I'm stuck with you till my dying day. It's just a picture of a girl in a birthday suit with her cowboy hat and her cowboy boots. I can go to the man and have it erased or have him put a mustache on your face. What am I gonna do with your tattoo? Well, you know, we, we talked about your solo records, and, and there was kind of a long spell between the release of your 1978 Arista album and then your next couple records as a solo artist, After the Rain and Lonely Midnight from the mid-1990s. Now, a, a good many of those songs were written solo, and you've obviously had success alone and as a collaborator. When it comes to the process of creating a song, do you prefer one method over the other? Uh, no. No, I... Uh... It just happens. I mean, uh, I've always enjoyed co-writing, mm. and so I don't do it because it's the business way to go, like in Nashville, or, right. you know, uh, I mean, a lot of times you go, well, if I write a song with the artist who has a record deal, I'm going to have a much better chance of getting the song recorded, right. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. you know, and, and I like to do that too, but, but that's not the reason. I just, uh, I've always, from the very beginning liked co-writing. I feel I can uh, amplify the other guy's idea yeah. or help out or uh, it's just a different thing and it's fun and, and so and so that's why I do it. But yeah. then uh, once in a while there's a song on my new EP called The High Cost of Hate mm-hmm. about divorce and stuff and, and I had just been talking to a whole bunch of people and hearing a lot of sad stories from people and I was just sort of overwhelmed. I sat down at the kitchen table one morning, and I just wrote that song. You know, so yeah. sometimes yeah. they just come, they just come out of you all by yourself. Right, right. 
I believe uh, the high cost of hate is the only uh, Jack Timpson record on iTunes to carry an explicit uh, yeah. warning. So yeah. you know you're it's branching so, into new. You're 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 going blue. Well, yeah, <laughs> it's I guess so. It's blue for a guy like me. But then I I hear those words on on media everywhere, and I'm just <laughs> right. kind of going, "You're not blue." But right. Um, right. so I wrote the song and it. You know, I don't know. Yeah, you can say it says uh, I'm a cheating bastard and you're a selfish bitch. <laughs> so let's call it quits and make some lawyers rich. <laughs> We're gonna have to learn the high cost of Since I'm a cheating bastard, you're a selfish bitch. Let's call it quits and make some Well, I'm never going to be able to play this anywhere. You know, <laughs> right. it's not me. I can't play it at a folk club, really. My wife said, "Well, you might be able to play it someday at a bar where everybody's drinking." You know, so, <laughs> um, so, so then I get a gig, and then I find out later the gig is for 200 of the top divorce lawyers in the country. <laughs> wow, that's, so you've that's what play the it. gig is. They're having a special dinner for the most successful divorce lawyers. Amazing. Wow. And, and they've hired me to play. So I, I'm going, <laughs> okay, I'm going to play that song. <laughs> <laughs> so I played it, and uh, I got a standing ovation from the lawyers. <laughs> that's funny. But you're always a guy that's doing something interesting. Um, and a few years back, you were writing a new song every day and posting a video to your YouTube channel. Um, why did you choose to take on that songwriting challenge? Boy, I do not know. I guess it was, I just felt pretty lazy and, and it was just a discipline to see if I could do it and all. And, yeah. uh, it turns out it's no big deal because the writers in Nashville, uh, they have a, they write a song from 10 o'clock to two in yeah, the afternoon and another one, you know, so they write two songs a day. That's just, what do you mean? No big deal. It's just part of my job. Right. You know, but, Right. But I got a lot of songs I that never would have come out. Yeah, know? sure. A discipline, yeah. Yeah. And then one day I said, that's it. I've had enough. <laughs> All right. Did, I did it. I'm well, going to roll up a big joint and forget this whole thing. <laughs> <laughs> so much for that experiment. Yeah. yeah. Well, And another one of the cool things that you've been involved in is you've recently created a new series of online videos called Go Write One. Tell us a little bit about that project and what you're hoping to do to inspire people to write songs. I'm really excited about that. Uh, it's uh, little talks on songwriting, hmm. and they're maybe two minutes long on video. And everyone's always telling me through the years, hey, write a book on songwriting. Or, you know, you, know, you can make a lot of money because you've got these hit songs, and everybody wants to know, you know how to do it. Right. And I'm just thinking, well... I don't really know. You can only. I don't really know how much you can teach people how to do it, and how valuable that is. And I don't really want to spend time doing that. I could spend the same time writing a song. Yeah. You know, and that. So I. And I just wasn't into it. It felt a little fake, you know. Hmm. Uh, so, but with this thing, I came up with a whole new idea, and it's. I don't. Uh, I'm sorry. The things are about songwriting. Yeah. But they're not about how to write a song. They don't tell you anything about the bridge and the chorus. Hmm. They don't talk about rhyme. They don't talk about lyric. All I'm talking about is basically, I mean, I sort of have a thought that whatever you want to do in life, the first thing is you've got to get in the mood. Right. You get in the mood, you get in the zone, and then you do it. 
So this is like how to get in the mood, how to want to write a song, how to get excited, how to get in the zone, uh, and all the magical ways you can prompt yourself to get something inside of you out Hmm. and why you want to do it. And it's called Go Write One because at the end of every little talk I go, so go write one. I'm Mm. trying to get people all inspired and excited about going and writing another song. And, of course, this is, I mean, it's, this is available to the public, but I'm really only doing it for people who want to write songs. You know? Right, sure. So it's, and, it's uh, more so about they, inspiration than it is about instruction. Yes. Yeah. Because I'm thinking, you know, all the technical details. And the other thing, I don't talk anything about how to get your song placed in the business. Right. You know, <laughs> right. all that stuff. Everyone else is telling them how to do that, and there's lots of good information. And it's not what I want to talk about anyway. Right. You know? well, it sounds like you and Glenn inviting the muse again. Yes. You know? That's exactly what it is. Yeah, yeah. So exactly where can where can people go to to see the Go Write One video series? It's on this site called Patreon. Okay. And the Patreon site is kind of a funding site, and then it gives you the option of just saying, "Well, I think I'll like what this guy's doing. Yeah. I'll click here and I'll give him a dollar a month." I see. So it's not by the project or anything. Yeah. It's kind of like, yeah, I'll give him a buck a month. Right. And, and so, so that's I'm that's doing uh, that's Patreon p a t r e o n dot com. Yes. Okay, cool. Great. It's an amazing yeah. kind of a site. A lot of people are getting 5,000 bucks every time they make a video wow. yeah. just straight from their fans. Wow. My so I think it's kind of a revolutionary new cool a way to model. do things. Yeah. Well, you've got a, a new album called Learning to Dance that will be coming out um, very soon. Can you give us a little preview of what to expect? Well, I'm so very excited about this album. And I've produced my own albums for the past few years, so... I've always wanted to find a great producer and try to add that to the mix. Sure. Uh, so I looked all around, and I found this young guy living around here, and I decided he's great. Uh, and he was, he's mostly in EDM and other kinds of music, Interesting, right? yeah. But he has a lot of skills. And so, so we made this album, and he's 28 years old. Yeah. And so I'm kind of going... You know, I was working on things with him, talking to him, going, if we could get everything you are about music and somehow merge it with what I am about mm. music, we might, if we got lucky and were able to do that, we might really go somewhere. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But anyway, I just love it. I'm really excited for people to hear it and hope they, you know, find something there. Yeah, yeah. Well, we are excited to hear it, too, and... Thank you so much for taking the time to to join us for this conversation today. This has been great. Well, thank you. It's been really fun. Thank you for listening, and we hope you'll join us for the next episode of Songcraft Spotlight on Songwriters. To find out more about our guests, stream episodes, get a sneak peek at upcoming interviews, or to contact us with your feedback, visit songcraftshow.com. While you're there, sign up for our mailing list so you can stay up to date with everything that's happening in the Songcraft universe. We'd love to stay connected with you, so please like our Facebook page at facebook.com backslash songcraftshow. And if you enjoy what we're doing here at Songcraft, please take a moment to leave us a rating and review on iTunes, which truly helps potential listeners discover these conversations. And of course, telling your friends about us and sharing links to Songcraft via social media is a crucial component of helping us share the wisdom and insight of some of the greatest songwriters around. We appreciate your support as part of the Songcraft community, and we thank you for helping us spread the word. Be sure to subscribe to the show via iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
and we look forward to getting together with you again for the next episode of Songcraft Spotlight on Songwriters.